I've never walked alone. I've never been abandoned. What a comfort song that is. <laughs> Just that confidence that we have knowing that we're never having to do, deal with anything alone. There's nothing more assuring than that. I'm trying to make that balance. Okay. That makes me nervous. <laughs> anyway. Okay, we're going to be uh, reading from Matthew 28 today, a fairly well-known conversation, Matthew 28, 16 to 20, and it's called The Great Commission. had a bit of a laugh yesterday. We were at a uh, youth uh, training day, conference-y kind of thing for the SANT division, um, and it was really great to join with other youth leaders and uh, some officers just to talk about youth and what's happening and how we can better uh, serve in that space. But uh, funny that this very scripture came up <laughs> during the day and I always have a little giggle about that because sometimes in the chosen study it uh, tends to pull a uh, scripture out that we might be doing uh, today, like on the Sunday and it happened again yesterday. And so I kind of have a laugh that God likes to uh, tell us things and also... Uh, <laughs> remind us throughout the, the week and um, I love that because it means that we're actually uh, opening our eyes and our hearts to what God wants to tell us so a uh, bit of a great giggle there but let's read Matthew 28 16 to 20 the great commission then the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go when they saw him they worshipped him but some doubted then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptising them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. It's a good one. I've read that one like I can't even tell you how many times I've read that one. But there's little little tidbits in that whole thing that we're going to unpack. So when we look at the ministry of Jesus on earth, it was evident that he held a greater power. The power that was different to earthly power, one that was not the possession of a man, but of God. God continued to exercise his power through Jesus by giving his enlightened reality and his direct communication. In that strength and wisdom, Jesus continued, even encountering the toughest of adversaries and threats and temptations, and through all of that, he still felt no need to protect his own identity as a man. He continued to draw that attention back to the Father. How often do we hear him say, oh, it's the Father, it's the Father who sends me, even though he's one and the same. When we begin to understand that God is willing to sustain us with his power, we become free from the fear that causes us to hold on to those things that matter most to us in our earthly lives, especially things like our reputation, our identity, social standing, our possessions. And we give way to a new life that frees us to love others and share the truth of what sustains us. That's a disciple, really, right there. A student, an apprentice or an intern who watches, practices and under supervision asks questions, makes mistakes, they learn from them, endure tests and resilience, patience and hopefully promotions. They go through the whole experience as they discover who they desire to become. 
Again, this brings us to the passionate participation of being a Christ follower that we've talked about all year. Aaron spoke last week about being willing to open ourselves up to that participation in the Missio Dei. That taking a chance making, uh, might just uncover giftings and callings that we never knew that we had. And if we are to make more disciples, we need to be first baptised. That is, immersed in the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit in our own lives so that we can build opportunities to baptise new disciples in the name of the Father, Son and Holy Spirit. It is said very clearly by Jesus in this Great Commission speech that we are to go and make disciples of all nations. So in other words, go and make students of Christ, place people in apprenticeships into a lifelong learning process just like we are. Encourage others through your own story to begin their own journey in Christ. This is not about church membership or attendance records. In fact, once again, Jesus has physically removed his 11 followers, minus the one we don't talk about, <laughs> away from Jerusalem, away from the temples, out, of, out to Galilee. Jesus seemed to prefer not to minister in the centre of Jerusalem and in the temples. His concern was very much focused towards those outside of the walls. His concern is whole life transformation for those most distant from God from now until the end of the age. It's interesting also that he recruited his disciples mainly from these same outskirts and they were far from upstanding citizens already serving in the church. The disciples were an unlikely bunch handpicked by Jesus. And let's be real for a minute, they were far from perfect and at a glance seemed like a terrible choice to be examples of Jesus' ministry. Peter, Andrew and James, I'll give you some examples, and John, were lowly fishermen. Fishermen were hard workers, but they weren't thought of as the most educated. Their hours out at sea were so long, they had little time, if any, to spend studying and reading. They had no prestige or honour. They weren't really regarded by others. Peter, for example, was irrational and hot-headed at the best of times, definitely not fit to lead others in the way of the Lord. James and John had power issues. What are they called? The sons of thunder in the Chosen series. They got their mum to ask Jesus if they could sit on his right and left side in heaven. They often claimed to be more worthy than the other disciples and furthermore often believed in big moves that included irrational things like calling down fire from heaven on those, particularly Samaritans, who didn't receive the gospel message. You don't believe it? <laughs> Simon was a zealot. He hated the Roman government so badly that he made a vow to kill any Roman or Jew who cooperated with Rome and got close enough to him. He was a hitman, a modern-day terrorist, if you wish. Matthew was a tax collector. Tax collectors were known for pocketing large amounts of money for themselves. But wait, it gets worse. He was a Jew collecting taxes for an empire that was not welcome in Israel. Rome was a savage conqueror. Many of Matthew's fellow countrymen were beaten, jailed, killed and raped by the people who he was collecting taxes for. Yet this didn't stop Matthew from profiting, did it? Then, of course, there was Mary Magdalene, a woman possessed by demons. Women were not considered to be worthy of becoming leaders. In fact, girls were rarely educated and were reliant on marrying a good and reputable man and birthing healthy children to have any hope of security in life. Add on to her personal demons uh, and she was not only a lot, 
not a likely choice to follow the Son of God and definitely not so in the world's eyes. And the list goes on. We could keep going. We see hints of that too in the disciples as they continue to wrestle with Jesus and his teachings all through their apprenticeships. They often questioned and argued and fought their instincts to go home. They were fearful that we even see in verse 17 that within the group some worshipped Jesus and some were still experiencing some doubt. Like, do I really want to deal with this? Jesus' disciples were people, regular people on a long life journey. I've not shared in any real depth about my personal story here in this place, though it may not be a secret as such that I've had my own history of doubt and questioning. In my late teen years and 20s, I began to experience symptoms of something that stopped me dead in my tracks. I was well on the way to what I considered a bright future, ever the optimist, the world was at my fingertips. But it was almost as if overnight I began to experience physical pain And these physical things began to make me fearful. This fear was overwhelming, so much so that I truly believed that I was dying. Every little thing happened in my body sent a message to my mind that I was in deep trouble and nothing could talk me out of it. It began to impact my work. I spent weeks off hiding at home, waiting for the inevitable. And when I dared to venture out, the fear just increased. It was actually my dad who eventually forced me to see a doctor and after a number of tests, the doctor concluded that I had anxiety and depression. She she described some of these solutions to ease this new condition and I went home holding this new reality that somehow I had become broken. I remember feeling ashamed that I now had to carry this label, ashamed that after seeking diagnosis from a doctor, I came out of there essentially feeling like everything that was happening to me was all in my head. At the time, I was not only beginning a new apprenticeship in hairdressing, which was extremely demanding of my time and always required me to be on the ball and look a particular way, but I was also a pretty active member at church, participating in multiple groups and roles, all of which required me to be up on on display in front of people or bringing energy and leadership, all of which now seemed impossible for someone like me to do. So one by one, I started to step away from these roles. No more singing, no more leadership. It was hard enough to sit in church at all, because after all, where was God in all of this? I'd been going to church my entire life. I did all the things that I was supposed to do, but where was God now? Over time, I learned how to fake it a lot. (laughs) I could put on a smile and crack a joke, and while on the inside, my heart was racing fast, My stomach was turning, my chest was tight, and I thought I would probably pass out. (laughs) Most of the time, no one knew I was silently suffering. And for a while, that was my plan. In my own strength, I just have to get through each day without people knowing the truth. I waited every night for everyone else to go to sleep like normal people do. And it was always then that I fell into the deepest darkness of being alone. And I rarely slept. I counted the minutes to morning and somehow, I don't know how, but I suited up again for the next day. This was my routine for a really long time. So fast forward about 10 years from then, one husband and two young children later, I'm doing all the new thing, all the things a new mum has to do, but now I'm an expert at faking my identity. Because of this, I started to pick up a few more church tasks because it would look weird if someone like me wasn't doing all those things because I used to. 
I just had that little secret that, oh, I had to do family stuff. So now I'm ready to start again. So I started leading worship again and leading some youth groups and things like that. But for some reason, my plan of faking it was starting to crack. I was getting really angry. And how long was God going to ignore me for? I was doing the things. (laughs) But it was then that I decided to pray. Not like a regular prayer, but one of actual anger. (laughs) I was angry and I was ready to let God have it. I cried, I yelled, I begged God to hear me and to heal me. I began to pray out of desperation really for healing, for peace, for strength. The praying was constant, one long ongoing prayer at any time of the day or night when I felt like, oh no, how am I going to get through this moment? I was just like, God, just help me. In this new season of suffering though, I was learning something, something that was new to me. I was learning that my plan wasn't going to be the key to freedom. My plan was what kept me in the darkness. Now, as I look back in hindsight, it's pretty clear to me that God was allowing a wilderness experience in my life because he was preparing me for ministry. The wilderness was necessary so that I could learn to be reliant on God. I needed to lay down my life in full surrender and give way to the control I was desperately trying to cling to. You see, Jesus modelled what the disciples needed to do. He taught them how they were to be disciples and how they were to become teachers, preachers and fishers of men. All of it comes back to the power of God working in and through them. Like I said earlier, Jesus never attempted to draw attention to himself or maintain his reputation. At every opportunity, he drew everything back to the Father who sent him. Despite then, his reputation being pretty stained, shamed, threatened, he still pressed on. He chose some of the most unlikely followers, perhaps because it's not about earthly credentials, but about the ability to surrender. I wonder if Jesus chose some of the most superior church leaders, what would that have looked like? They knew the scriptures, they knew the law, but did they know how or were they even willing to surrender to God and allow him to take full control of their lives? The command that Jesus puts to the disciples, the Great Commission, is to make disciples of all nations. It consists of two activities, one to baptise and one to teach. This is the point in which we recognise the Trinitarian God as Jesus tells his followers and us to reenact his story in the baptism of new disciples. Which in the greater sense doesn't necessarily mean the physical baptism of dunking people in water, although that can be a helpful exercise. But it's the idea of immersing or enfolding followers in the life of the Father, Son and Holy Spirit. The Son as the physical representation of God, Emmanuel, the Father loving his followers as his own children, and the Spirit descending upon us and working in our lives. Discipleship is not some kind of special task for elite humans. Instead, it is good news of the kingdom of God that he has personally set all who are willing and committed to task. Not only that, we are equipped through the triune God to simply commit ourselves to a life of discipleship and he will do the rest. How good. (laughs) Live a life truly immersed in the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit and he will do the rest. 
This commission does not discriminate. God promised Abraham that all the tribes of the earth would one day be brought into the family of God, even the Gentiles who would bow before God. This means that anyone, no matter your situation, your giftings, your talents, and those niggling shortcomings, can be an active disciple, teaching and baptising others to be disciples too. The very fact that the task is utterly impossible to do without the power of God, the Father, Christ the Son, and the Holy Spirit working through us, throws us completely onto the mercy and strength of God. I have a scripture marked on my arm permanently, on this arm, as a reminder of my own personal journey that led me to a full surrender to God. In full admission of my utter weakness, feeling like I had nothing left to go on, and if life looked like continuing to fight against this darkness, then I wanted no part in it. I physically dropped to my knees in full surrender and handed my weaknesses over to him. It was then in that moment that I realised that God had asked me to admit my weaknesses so that his power could fill my life. That scripture on my arm is from 2 Corinthians 12, 9 to 10. And it says, But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. I realise that the power of God is more evident in my life when I surrender self. Asking for more of God and less of me. Asking God to take control, to speak through me, to teach, to guide and to baptise others. Along with that comes a surrender of earthly recognition. We can't be effective in this commission without releasing some of those earthly things that bring us comfort. Such things like praise and attention and accolades, popularity, simply being liked and respected, they're all things that make us feel good, but they also make us feel awful when we don't have them. And this is why discipleship is a lifelong journey, because we're going to pick those things up whenever we can get them, and we have to fight against it. We need to work at it always. Sometimes we bob our heads up out of the water of baptism and look around for gratification and it takes a physical effort to submerge ourselves again. It takes further effort to encourage others to join us on the journey now. I'm not using my personal story today as some kind of sparkling example of how others should be. Far from it. In fact, I would definitely put myself in a category much like those unlikely disciples. An anxiety-stricken, troubled-with-fear young mum with no credentials or desire to acquire said credentials. For church leadership, called to do just that, it seems ridiculous. The only way that I am capable, though, of doing God's work is if I surrender my incompetence and my weaknesses and allow God to do his thing. The work of the church as a whole, both here at Powerful Gardens and the United Church in the world, is much the same. We cannot be effective in building God's kingdom here on earth if all authority belongs to the church or its resources. It needs to come from God's wild investment of God in Jesus, the Son and the willingness of the Son to be present always to the church in the Spirit. Less of us and more of him. 
Again, we meet the radical upside-down thinking. God's power is different to earthly power. God's success is different to our earthly success. And in a minute, we're going to have a song that plays and we'll be confronted by the upside-down notion of surrender. That when we fall to our knees, when we admit that everything we may have succeeded in life is nothing until we give it all up to God. It is when we lay our lives down to God that we find our true selves, our life calling, and we discover those new heights in the name of Jesus. This song will invite us to consider our lives. Where are we sitting? What are we holding on to? And what are we missing out on? Some of the words say, what fortune lies beyond the stars? Those dazzling heights too vast to climb. I got so high to fall so far, but I found heaven as love swept low. My heart beating, my soul breathing, I found my life when I laid it down. Upward falling, (laughs) spirit soaring, I touched the sky when my knees hit the ground. Find me here at your feet again, everything I am reaching out, I surrender. Come sweep me up in your love again and my soul will dance on the wings of forever. So I pray this morning that this may be our story, each and every one of us, that we find our great commissioning in the surrender, to be fully immersed in the lifestyle of God and that God can work through us to build his kingdom as he sees fit. More of him and less of us. No reputation, no accolades, no earthly gain, just simply less of us and more of him.